Hey everyone, back again. Today we're going to continue on with Foucault's second series of lectures from the Collège de France titled Penal Theories and Institutions. And today we're going to kick off from chapter six or from week six. In case you're just tuning into this, be sure to go to the first episode. That would make a lot more sense. I've also covered the lectures before this uh, titled The Lectures on the Will to Know, and I've also done almost all of Foucault's other texts. If you're interested in that, you can go and find them. On YouTube, I have a playlist specifically titled uh, Michel Foucault that you can go and check out if you'd like. Uh, you know all the other stuff. You can help me out mostly by liking, sharing, subscribing, telling your friends, or monetarily be a patron or PayPal. Links for all such things in the description. Now, yeah, let's jump into the second half of this collection of lectures. So as we said last time, there was the introduction of the steady introduction of a new kind of oppressive apparatus that extended beyond just the power of the royalty, of the king. It became a more ubiquitous, standardized form of repression that was organized around the state. So it assumed or took on some administrative uh, tasks. It, it assumed some administrative qualities in order to better maintain the population to make it so that the state could collect tax from them, but also to maintain order for other reasons that order is useful. So state repression was coherent in breaking old alliances that might have existed under feudalism, so like between peasants and artisans, for example, or between feudal lords and parliament, because parliament was just representing the value of the landowners, the feudal lords, who, would, who owned all the land and who rented out their land to people who'd work on it and give the feudal lords some of uh, what they were able to earn from the land that they work on. Now, state repression broke these old alliances to establish a single privileged group that commanded that repression. Now, this group is not like a single homogenous mass, nor is it easily identifiable. The point is that it steadily established a set of guidelines and rules that a few people would be responsible for maintaining. A few could be quite a bit, but the actual, uh, the way that this force actually looked was quite different than the way it had previously. So we'd start to see that, to some extent, regular people would assume such roles, administrative tasks. They'd be responsible for tax archives. They'd be responsible for bookkeeping and so on. So the bourgeois, as we said in the last episode, held something of an ambiguous position here, where on the one hand, they opposed taxes like the peasants, like the people who are going to be exploited by these taxes. The bourgeois didn't like taxes because if their consumer base and people who they lent money to were paying taxes. That means they would have less money to pay the bourgeois or to buy things from the bourgeois. However, the bourgeois also enjoyed some of the other things that came along with this new state repressive system that was set up to uh, maintain taxes to make it so that it was easier to collect taxes in that it allowed for a new way to order the population and to render them docile in lots of ways so that they would be more ripe for economic exploitation. So the bourgeois could then better control the people, could better exploit them for their labor if they were a docile mass who were, you know, just following orders, who were under constant surveillance and so on. Not to mention as well that taxes at this time were also going to benefit the bourgeois where the state system, obviously recognizing that the bourgeois was a, an emerging, very rich, powerful class rivaling the aristocracy, the bourgeois, the, you know, the aristocracy, just to be clear, largely comprised of people who just inherited their wealth through like legacies of, of riches, whereas the bourgeois were acquiring wealth in new ways through capitalism that allowed for new kinds of growth, new kinds of economic and industrial development. So the state system actually liked the bourgeois for lots of reasons because they increased the massive wealth that existed within any given state. The more, uh, the more trade that was going on, the more production, the more wealth, therefore the more taxes that could be levied against the uh, people. Now this signals to us that the way in which this system justified its existence was not necessarily to do so in the name of justice, as though it was going to establish these new forms of control of the population because it believed that that was the, the path to righteousness. Now, 
Foucault is not as clear on this point as I think he could be, because at the same time, we have to recognize, as he said in the last, one of the last lectures uh, in this, in this volume, he said that the state repressive apparatus was associated with the good, which is hard not to extract a moral judgment from that as though it being uh, just, it is a more legitimate way of doing things. But in any case, he highlights here that beyond that, this system simply sought to represent certain interests. It sought to represent the interests of the bourgeois, of a new administrative class that was emerging, of royal power that was still lingering, and so on. So it would also draw upon old forms of control. It wasn't all totally new with this new administrative body. It also drew upon the military, which obviously extends much earlier, and justice systems. So all of the powerful people in that society and we're still talking about 16th, 17th century France here, in that society began to align their interests in ways that would co-opt, take advantage of these changing forms of control, of state repression in order to benefit from it. So we see a harmony here between tax and rent, whereas I just mentioned, there should be a, a conflict between the two, between those who collect taxes and those who collect rent. Because if you're a landlord, you want your tenants to have as much disposable income so that you could charge them more for rent. But here we see, instead of that kind of conflict between tax and rent, we see a new kind of harmony emerging. Now, they could rely on each other in certain ways, as I've already uh, laid out. And this flies in the face with a lot of like earliest political economists like Adam Smith, David Ricardo, who saw that there was a natural conflict between tax and rent. Foucault identifies that there are ways in which they work together very well in that they both piggyback on an ordering system that is the bourgeois relies on government authority government military uh, because the bourgeois is not going to spend all the money on that and they can use that not necessarily to earn them immediate money in the form of capital and rent profits anything like that but instead they are playing more of a long game here of subordinating up, up an entire population into being ripe for exploitative labor. So while they might make less profit in the short term, because some of the possible profit they're making is going to be paid in taxes, and their consumer base is going to have less disposable income, it's going to be better for them in the long run, if the population is not about to overthrow them, it's gonna, you know, keep them at bay. So the state will employ a number of different strategies to try and maintain order, it will hire revolutionaries in some ways to work in government to work in uh, the system in order to make it so that they won't participate in any kind of insurgent movement. It will just imprison them. It will confine them. It will extradite them, ostracize them, uh, and, and all of this. And it would do this through an emerging new administrative kind of uh, control apparatus that is the police, which, as we mentioned last time, is more cost efficient than the military, requires less training, uh, and can be more ubiquitous, more present, just, you know, you see police officers all the time. And also, of course, we'd see the prison emerge. And it's important to highlight that, you know, capitalism, the emergence of capitalism, these new kinds of control, there's no coincidence that they merged alongside one another. Many of the logics that motivated this new kind of repression to emerge comes before capitalism. But in any case, there's no coincidence that they emerge together in that they work quite harmoniously together, just like tax and rent work very well together, which is interesting just for me for a number of reasons. And if anyone's familiar with Adam Smith, you would know that one of the central tenets of the capitalist economy for Adam Smith is that it allows for freedom for Adam Smith. Workers can do whatever they want. They can, as long as they're making money, they can move wherever they want. But what we don't see in Adam Smith is an acknowledgement of a new kind of ordering and a new kind of repression that had to come in in order to make sure that there were limits and safeguards on the freedom that people were ostensibly going to have in this new economy. But in any case, that's maybe a larger discussion for another time. So this puts us here into week seven. So initially, this is probably the shortest chapter, actually. Initially, the repressive system responds to popular struggles like revolts. When, when he uses the term popular, he's talking about like everyday people, what they're engaged in. Popular knowledge being knowledge, like everyday knowledge of the, um, of the population. 
So the repressive system would respond to popular struggles like revolts. Only later would it uh, start to respond to new kinds of undesirables in the, in the form of criminals or delinquents. So in its infancy, this new state repressive system wasn't responding to kinds of like aberrations within the social body in the form of deviant people or people who have deviated from the norm. It was responding to mostly like armed violence that, that had, to be, had to be stifled, had to be shut down. And it was only with time that could some qualities, could some attributes, could some actions that weren't like immediately violent protests or violent revolutionary sentiment, could these other forms of actions be associated with bad, be associated with evil, and could then assume different qualities. Instead of being somebody just, you know, trying to live your life, you know, you're a delinquent, you're a deviant, you're a criminal. And so the entire social body starts to hate you, not just a criminal system or not just a social uh, administrative body, royalty, government that sees you as a problem. Now you are seen as being like tainted, dirty, uh, and the whole society will hate you for it. And he just ends this chapter by suggesting or illustrating this triad or the trinity of the state repressive system uh, being comprised of intendants of justice, judges, bailiffs, other figures like that, the police, and prisons. And they all work together uh, to form the, I guess, the primary force of this new repressive system. It would still drop on the military and direct excessive force, but these institutions were the most useful in that they also assumed the status of being more humane than old forms of punishment, like execution. And this is more from uh, his text, Discipline and Punish, when he highlights the ways in which prisons were justified as being a more humanitarian solution to other forms of violence, or, or of punishment, I should say, like executions or like torture, which you know, anyone hearing this would be like, yeah, of course, like, I'd rather go to prison than undergo execution, like, obviously. However, it's important to also acknowledge the extent to which that this logic was spread out throughout the entire social body, so that more and more people would be incarcerated. The categories of deviance and criminality would be extended to such an extent that, you know, entire populations could potentially be incarcerated. Uh, and we see that certainly in the United States, for example, where incarceration rates are disgustingly high. So it might be better than being executed, at least I would say that, but it's important to acknowledge that just because it's better does not mean it's good and that there are still significant problems with it. And that puts us here. And if you want to know more about Discipline and Punish, I've covered it in its entirety and you can go listen to that if you want. And that puts us here into chapter eight where there was a new, I feel like I'm going fast, whatever, <laughs> whatever. So there was a new system uh, that was distinct, obviously, from the old feudal one. And this, uh, you know, there are a few different characteristics here. The new system sought to protect private property without capturing it. So the government wasn't just going to take over private property that uh, it would then defend because it owned it. It would defend the private property of private individuals who owned that property. It also guaranteed the tax collection without necessarily collecting it. So the new administrative body, the new uh, state repressive system, was going to facilitate the uh, ability to collect taxes. So there was um, also an emerging political power that wasn't directly political. And again, this all refers to the ways in which it became so ubiquitous that everyday people had to participate in it, and it became the lines between the repressed and the repressor began to blur. It wasn't like there was just a king over there who was, you know, doing all of this bad stuff. It felt like everybody was participating in it. Everybody was contributing to this new emerging way to control the population, making it more difficult to identify who the culprits were. And so the system... Uh, seeks to liberate, or this new repressive system, seeks to liberate rather than constrain capital. Because it sees capital, capitalism, the free flow of money, the ability to grow industry as being uh, integral to the nation, to the state's growth. And this also reminds me, for anyone familiar with Deleuze and Guattari's work, as uh, from mostly anti-Oedipus, 
they identify the ways in which the image of capital as being free-flowing depends upon various other broader institutional formations like the state and like religion, like the family, to ground it, where it can't always be fully free-floating. So this is why um, it's, it's incredibly important to, to, to note that capitalism relies upon these older structures in order to keep itself going. So this broad shift affected so many different people, so many different classes at this time, you know, parliament, royalty, the aristocracy, peasants, bourgeois, artisans, you know, small, petit bourgeois, like, it affected so many different people. And they all, it's not as though they all recognized at the time how it was going to work in their favor. So you'd have bourgeois people who were like, this sucks, right? This is repressing me, uh, not fully seeing how it was going to benefit them in the long run. So these different classes and all the individuals within it probably had different views of how this system was going to unfold and how penality should be conducted. And so there were, you know, differing uh, forms of literature or literature that was emerging around it and in terms of fiction and nonfiction to try to understand these new forms of penality, which Foucault just suggests that there were all these forms. He doesn't go into great detail about it. Uh, I guess you'd get more, I don't know if he actually mentions any literature and discipline and punish. He might, I'm just, um, in any case, the point being that all of these forces, while we know now that many of them were actually aligned, were not necessarily, didn't necessarily agree with that. They didn't necessarily believe that. And so they all had brought their own view uh, to the table and had different ideas about what was going on. Okay, so I mentioned earlier that these logics of this new repressive system can be traced earlier than 16th, 17th century France. And here he goes into a little bit of a history. And I don't want to get bogged down too much in it, uh, just because... It feels like this should have come earlier, but in any case, without going into too many details, he traces it to the origins of Germanic law within you know Middle Ages and a little bit before, or I guess just the Middle Ages, whatever. But Germanic law was the kernels of this system. Now, when I say that, if you listen to the last series of lectures, you'd actually say that no, probably the kernels could be seen in ancient Greek society. But bear with me. So under Germanic law, how it was conducted was that if there was somebody who had a grievance against somebody else, like if I think that Bob down the road stole from me, the way that justice would ensue would be that I would go and, you know, probably confront Bob, try to get my money back or try to take back what he stole from me. And if that didn't work, we would, you know, pursue the justice system. We'd talk to a judge or I'd talk to a judge and say, this is what happened. And then we'd both arrive and the judge was just like a facilitator between this interaction. So this could obviously regress into conflict between people where if they didn't like the outcome or didn't agree with the judge's verdict, uh, then they could essentially have a war between themselves. They could battle it out to figure out what was going to happen. And at the time, it, the judge didn't stand in for truth and justice per se in the way that we understand it today or in 16th and 17th century France. Many centuries earlier with Germanic law, it was more that they just would uh, try to figure out like how much someone was owed if a verdict was reached or reached or if you know a solution was arrived at. And because there was still like likely to be lots of conflict between people where they would probably fight, maybe engage in a private war, courts would at times not even want to have anything to do with this. They, you know, they saw themselves as being like, maybe not a last resort, but certainly not the first resort in this type of situation. They just wanted to sit on the sidelines and facilitate two people figuring it out. Now that puts us here, we're going to talk about this more in the next chapter, and this puts us here into lecture number nine. So in the case of a court proceeding under Germanic law, the accused had to prove innocence, the idea being that you're guilty until proven innocent. And what would remain up through, uh, up through the penal, uh, to the penal law, to the new kind of justice we saw in the 17th and 16th centuries, was the public's role in siding with one person or the other. And we certainly see this today. If there's a big uh, court trial, you know, publicized thing, the public's going to take sides and, um, you know, that will 
it might affect the case. Uh, it might not. But in any case, the public will have some kind of participa- participatory role, albeit indirect, to that uh, situation. So at the time, in order to prove your innocence, you did it in a different way than we understand today. So today, you know, you'd bring evidence in the way that we understand evidence. But at the time, like, it's not as though you're going to have DNA evidence or have video camera footage of what had happened. You know, you're going to have to rely on other people speaking on your behalf, maybe speaking to your character, maybe, you know, uh, acting as an alibi for you to be able to say, no, you know, Bob couldn't have done this thing because Bob was at the carnival at that time. So therefore, your your case is insignificant. I don't know. Your case is without grounding. I don't know proper legal jargon. So the system would rely on oaths. So someone would give an oath that they're telling the truth. Maybe people would even be tortured. And he talks about this more in Discipline and Punish, but torture was treated as a way to arrive at truth, where people would give up the truth through torture. But it also posed some problems because if someone didn't give up the truth, then they must be innocent. So it was just a matter of holding out from uh, giving up the truth, which is anathema. It's opposite to, to justice if, if we think such a thing exists. Or these situations could play out through duels or battles. So to arrive at truth, they would have to go to battle, either physical or, or through wits. And this is similar to what we saw in Greek society in the last series of lectures, where justice was conducted by challenging your opponent, the person who's accusing you or that you're accusing, to say that you have to tell the truth now, because if you do not, you will be punished by the gods later on. And that would scare people into saying the truth. Is it worth lying if you might be punished by the gods later? Or... Uh, Do you say the truth and maybe be forgiven? Now, interestingly, when battles ensued, especially if they were high-profile battles between two people that involved their families, maybe their communities, this would actually result in some cases with some people, uh, like large-scale victories, and having a broader swath of the population associating themselves with the victor. And this would actually allow for broader communities to emerge maybe even allowed the um, emergence of the first nation states where people were aligned in their hatred of somebody else, the loser who was vanquished in the battle. So in these cases, war, private war between individuals trying to work out some kind of situation was a demonstration of law that, uh, I guess, required the suspension of law. So if a war ensued, it was done in the name of law, because somebody believed themselves uh, to be just in the eyes of the law, in the way that law was written down, and somebody else was, from the other person's eyes, seen as being illegitimate, unlawful. However, this war, these wars would be conducted in the name of the law. However, they would demonstrate a suspension of the law, because you needed to kill people in the case of war. There would probably be thievery as well. So this resembles like uh, Agamben's state of exception. It's like the suspension of law in order to intensify law. Now, the resolution of battle or the court proceeding would often mean one side would owe the other person money. And it would be, like I said earlier, perhaps the judge's job to determine how much money. How much does the person, is the person owed for what's happened? So at this stage, justice was primarily responsible for handling wealth appropriating it, distributing it where it needed to go. So justice had, has been incentivized and will need a strong man or strong man to guarantee the collection of debts and fees. So if the justice system arrives at a verdict, the judge says, Bob, you owe me, David, $9,000, whatever. Uh, in that case, somebody had to make sure that Bob was going to pay. So the justice system had to rely upon some kind of force in order to do that. And obviously, the military would serve this role, maybe at the time when full-blown militaries weren't available or formed, they could rely on militias. They could hire people with guns or with other weapons to go and get the money. Now, we can't ignore the role that the plague, the Black Death, uh, served here. 
in transforming this law. So many people died, obviously, if we know anything about the plague. And so the demand for labor went up, which meant that the remaining workers who didn't die had more power. They had more negotiating power because there was a shortage of labor and uh, many different people who'd be hiring laborers, landowners, early bourgeois people, would have to you know, pay more than their com competition in order to acquire laborers. And this increased the power of the peasant class. And so they were more incentivized to revolt, to oppose the, uh, any kind of taxation, to oppose their exploitation with their new power, the new power they had in the market. Now, this further necessitated that there, was, there would be a centralized force that would respond to any such revolts, any such protests, uh, resistance to this exploitation. And what force can do that really well? An army. And so the justice system, which actually liked when there were conflicts between people, unless it was going to escalate into all-out war and, you know, people might die, they actually liked conflicts between people because they would charge people fees to have the justice system facilitate to act as an arbiter in these situations. So the justice system was then incentivized for there to be more conflict. It was also incentivized for people to, uh, for there to be not the escalation of violence into all-out war. So they wanted a centralized force, the military or army, to keep the people docile and at bay, even though it was in its infancy here, not fully developed as we would see it happen in 16th and 17th century uh, France. Now, under the modern system, the concern is also about maintaining a norm and ostracizing or confining those who deviate from the norm, which would only happen later. Like I said, the early kind of repressive system and its roots in Germanic law was concerned with like over violence, forms of you know, protest and resistance, not just essentially punishing people for doing small things and classifying them into a broad, intelligible domain of criminality that the entire social body could then hate and oppose. And that puts us here into week number 10. So the medieval system that under Germanic law did not only rely on force. Foucault suggests that they used peace institutions to guarantee the transfer of wealth from one individual to another. So there would be, uh, there were pacts that were established to uh, end private wars between families or communities or individuals. Authorities would step in to encourage families to cease battling. Uh, the key, the king, the keys, the king would mandate peace, make it a fundamental requirement because you need your population to be docile. You need them to be uh, calm and ordered in order to best exploit them. Now, Foucault suggests in his words that the primary role of these institutions, quote, is to establish an authoritarian constitution of a space of play for judicial instances, that is to perform their role of tax levy, as it all comes back to taxes in this situation. And one other thing that occurred was that they would disarm the population, because It'd be a lot more difficult to go and collect your taxes if the person you're going to collect it from has a weapon that they could just fight you against. Now, at this time, you know, a weapon meant a lot. It's not like people today thinking uh, that somehow them having a gun can protect them from drone strikes or protect them from uh, a totalitarian government. Not to say that people should just back down, just say yes to all kinds of repression. But at this time, having a weapon was a lot more significant than it is now. And so to disarm the population at the time was a radical way to make sure that the people were not going to have any means to defend themselves if the state just knocked at their door. And additionally, mercenaries would largely be hired to, uh, to kill people, to make sure that people who were um, unruly were dealt with, and to offer protection for an emerging rich people class. <laughs> rich people class, and government officials who are going to essentially stand in for the state for um, the king's power to collect taxes or to do other things. Now, eventually, this crystallized into the centralized force for a new repressive state system. And that's just kind of 
something of the history here, I guess. Oh, no, we're going to talk about it a little bit more as we go on here. So that puts us here into week number 11, where Justice stepped in, where he says that Justice stepped in to manage these private wars, as we've already said, and to profit off of conflict in the name of peace, because they would collect fees from people using the justice system. Now, the body that was responsible to oversee justice would be Parliament at the time, uh, which represented the king. So in this case, justice could then be associated with the king, because justice was overseen by Parliament, overseen by the king, so justice was then associated with the king's will. And if the king believes that he is guided by God, which he was in many instances, then so too must be justice that is guided by God. And if you use God as justification because you can't counter it, especially at the time, uh, there wasn't necessarily counterpoints to this, then uh, people could then associate, just naturally associate this emerging justice with being good, with being proper. Now, in all of this, you know, the thing that Foucault does when he looks at events happening historically is not to say that they follow a strict like linear path. That is part of it. But he's also interested in identifying how there were these like ruptures, these moments in which there were these decisions almost by like individuals, not, not deliberately. They didn't know what was going to happen with uh, their decisions, but how certain events would come to shape the ways in which history would unfold. The point, the broader point he's making is that therefore it's not, if we just looked at it as being a linear progression, it's more difficult for us to imagine an alternative. But if we identify that these things happen because of a few people's wills or actions, then it'll be that much easier to imagine an alternative. You know, we just need a push because history is very malleable. It's bendable. It can be shaped and um, framed to be more, more equitable, to think about a more equitable, more fair future for everybody that doesn't rely upon exploitation. But in any case, that puts us here into chapter 12, week 12. And we, he tells us here that with the extension of the king's power through justice and parliament in the 13th and 14th centuries, here we're still dealing with Germanic law, we see the first steps to a centralized power. Because as I, as I just mentioned from the last lecture, or the last week of this lecture, uh, if there could be a unification of all of these institutions from the king through parliament through justice under one single guiding principle at the time being God, then you could start to see the cohesion, a, the unification and the homogenization of these forces around you know, single, almost ideological goals. It was motivated by religion, not so much like ideology, how we, we probably should understand ideology, but in any case, really to cohere, to uh, crystallize around, uh, around this, this, these unifying values. So here then we saw the king's interests reflected in the law that the king would say, you know, it's from God. You know, not, they, they distract from the fact that it just benefits them. So anything that directly affected him needed special treatment. That is, you know, we're still dealing 13th up to the 16th, 17th centuries in Europe and France. So if anything affected the king directly, then special kinds of prosecutors would have to be involved because the king was seen as being above everyone else. The king was speaking God's words. So therefore, the king had deserved special treatment. So as these laws, the king's words, the king's desires became more and more natural or seen as being more and more natural, anything that opposed them, anything that challenged them could then be seen as being unnatural or evil, therefore evil, because they deviate from an assumed belief around what is true, which has just been established, not because it is true. Uh, it has been established through the imposition of force that has made it so, made it, made it true. So an attack on this, any, on any of these institutions, any of these values could then be interpreted as an attack on a public order not just of the king. And we see this really come to take shape more in 17th, 18th centuries, uh, and so on beyond in France and everywhere else, where criminals, deviancy, 
are seen as being a hindrance not to those in power, but to everyone, which is a very clever way to establish and to maintain a norm that can be used to make people uh, docile, to make them prepared for a life of exploitation, while they hate people who break away from that norm, who say no to exploitation. And this is, you know, we're not talking about murders and um, anything like that. Like, of course, there are <laughs> bad actions. But one of the ways that I like to illustrate this is that people who are responsible for the 2008 financial collapse uh, in the United States and really around the world, almost no one was punished for it, even though it resulted in numerous deaths from uh, suicide, people losing their homes, people losing their, their, their pensions, people losing their jobs, like horrible. And no one's punished for this because even though what they did was wrong, and many of them were shown that they knew exactly that what, what they were doing was wrong, because justice is organized in a very specific way to reflect certain interests, those types of crimes are not seen as being more dangerous or more violent than someone stealing a TV from a Walmart or something, which like putting it into perspective is, is really absurd, but it reveals the extent to which that justice is bound up with various dominant belief systems in this case, capitalist, uh, the capitalist economy. So I digress, but now that we see a new kind of approach to justice unfolding where criminals are seen as attacking not just you know the king but a, but a public order a public good a social body then therefore or what began to happen was that the justice system was seen less as being a mediator between two individuals in terms of in, in the case of conflict and now the justice system began to see itself as a victim so if someone did something wrong it wasn't as though they just did something wrong to another private individual. By the very act of doing something wrong, they are viewed by the justice system as being somebody who has attacked the justice system because the justice system is intimately connected with, uh, with the very ordering of that society. And anything that opposes that ordering is seen as being uh, in need of you know, retaliation from that system, from the justice system. So the justice system then took on a more active role. They weren't just facilitating between two individuals. They were then prosecuting. You'd see state prosecutors emerging who would go after individuals who were seen to have, you know, believed to have broken the law. And then that puts us here into the final chapter, chapter 13, the final week. And in this uh, week, there were many pages from Foucault's notes that were lost. So there are many incomplete sentences and stuff, but... I'm going to do my best to give you the all the information you need to understand what's going on here. So in this lecture, this this last one, he uh, takes a turn and thinks about more of the broader implications of these transformations in the way that uh, law and the penal system was organized. So here he considers what he calls knowledge effects of this new penal justice. And he suggests that these are distinct from ideological operations. And I'll explain both, but just to be clear, he's identifying knowledge effects as being separate from ideological operations. Ideological operations for him refers to the set of processes by which penal practices and institutions are justified, explained, reworked, and inserted within systems of rationalization. Whereas knowledge effects, effects refers to the carving out the distribution and organization of what is given to be known in penal practice, the position and function of the subjects authorized to know, the form of knowledge, information, revelation, manifestation that is at stake here. And so when he's talking about knowledge effects, he's talking about a situation in which truth is introduced. So ideological operations is referring to how penal practices are uh, justified. You know, we say that, oh, there's this need uh, because all this crime is occurring, so we have to respond to this with, you know, X, Y, Z means. Whereas the knowledge effects are referring to the specific ways in which a type of rationality entered this institution. So some people knew exactly how to properly 
calculate the amount of punishment that would occur, how people would be treated, how people would be uh, dealt with, and like what roles could uh, the acquisition of knowledge play in perfecting this system. Now, whereas in the old justice system, knowledge effects would have referred to the way that two or more people were engaged in a test or, or an oath, like an oath duel. One says, I'm telling the truth, someone, and they, you know, who, how they try to accumulate as many oaths as they can to see who's telling the truth. In this system, or in that system, I should say, the old justice system under Germanic law, truth is only secondary. But in this new system, the new knowledge effects refers to a situation in which truth is primary. It's not about coming to the person who's more believable. It's about arriving at the truth, finding out what is true separate from what people say in court. So now we no longer, uh, does a defendant simply struggle with their accuser by saying, you know, just saying they're right. They are made intelligible in an apparatus of disciplinary action that classifies them and determines a sentence for them. So what he identifies in discipline and punish at this time was that punishment had to be uh, written down so that it wasn't seen as being arbitrary because if it was arbitrary or seen as being random, it would be hard to accrue to gain public support of that system because it would be seen as being illegitimate uh, for not being consistent. And to be consistent required an entirely new way of approaching justice as being associated with objectivity, not just of people's testimonies that entered another field of, of testimonies or you know, came in contact with other people's testimonies. So now the judge became something of a scavenger searching for the truth. So people are interrogated, they're cross-referenced, evidence is submitted. Questioning is a form of exercise of power, or he suggests that questioning became a form of the exercise of power, and the confession and inquiry became commonplace. It was about finding out who was telling the truth, not who was more legitimate in the eyes of, in like a certain moment, who had more people vouch for them. Now you might be hearing this and saying, well, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, we want to objectively validate and verify what people say if we can. You know, we introduce evidence to find out what happened, what the truth was in this situation. However, Foucault's point is not to say that such a thing can ever exist, that there can be this objective truth that's just introduced into uh, an exercise of justice or the penal system. But rather, that truth is always going to be negotiated and always going to be uh, under, under scrutiny. Like, and even how many times within the criminal justice system today is evidence introduced that's just not believed or is, uh, or is believed when it shouldn't have been because it was wrong, which isn't to say that it can't be perfected. But the point is that what can count as truth is always going to be subject to other ideological factors. And Foucault is just identifying the way in which this wasn't a total departure from the old form of justice, but in many ways a repackaging of it, where truth was just associated with being superior as being objective and therefore being more legitimate. And because of that, it allowed for little opportunities to question it. And the ways in which that truth actually reflects certain other um, dominant belief systems. It also doesn't engage with context, the motivations behind someone's actions, the ability to prove whether they did something intentfully. And so if anyone knows about anything about criminal justice now, there is so much negotiation that occurs between like how the punishment should be. Both sides, like their lawyers are going to negotiate this. Uh, what can be brought into evidence because this needs to be negotiated. If something was procured, was acquired in a certain way, it might not be uh, valuable, as, it might not be legitimate as evidence, and so many other things. And every single time that there's a debate about this, we see these old forms of justice uh, re-emerging, where it becomes a matter of like oath-telling, becomes a matter of justifying these points of just like saying I am legitimate because of X, Y, Z reasons, which isn't to say that um, it's not it's not different. It certainly is. 
but it draws upon many of these old uh, structures and is not a total departure from it. So uh, in contrast to the introduction, like I should, I got to preface this. In the previous set of lectures, the lectures on the will to know, Foucault identifies that in Greece, there was a, in the introduction of new ways to measure uh, people's wealth, their property, and how much they owed to other people with the introduction of new forms of measurement. And at that time, that motivated a new formation of justice to emerge. And here he's identifying something similar. With the introduction of truth and an association of truth with, with being superior to all forms of other possible uh, reasoning or other ways to arrive at a conclusion, justice also underwent a new change, where truth in the situation became a matter of searching for and extracting knowledge to find out what somebody you know knew and to verify that and to lend that knowledge legitimacy. And so here it is an example of power knowledge, which he says is, is true of Greek society when they introduced new kinds of measurement. But in any case, it's just important to identify that there are these powerful motivations behind this new kind of justice emerging, like the desire for order, which is occulted, which occulted means like hidden beneath these changes where it's, you know, people see objectivity, of course, this is great. I mean, this is fantastic. And in lots of ways, of course it is, but it hides the other motivations behind this, uh, this change, like a desire for ordering to make people ripe for exploitation. It also hides what kinds of crimes can even be considered worthy of bringing to the courts. What kinds of evidence can be used? If somebody, uh, like I said, in the you know, 2008 market collapse, none of these people were uh, really convicted except like one person or something. Uh, and in that case, that reveals the extent to which that it's not really a matter of truth because in order to arrive at this point of truth, we have to first agree that something is worth prosecuting for. And uh, in that case, like in the case of the 2008 financial collapse, that wasn't considered uh, worth prosecuting for. So the distinction that he offers here, he just offers a kind of broad distinction between Greek society and what we saw in 16th, 17th century France is that in Greek society, it was governed by the measure pedagogy system, introducing and teaching new ways of measuring people to know how much people owed, you know, what people owned and so on. Whereas this new system would be called or governed by an inquiry based uh, inquiry bureaucracy system that introduced a new administrative body concerned with this thing called truth, arriving at truth. And we see at this point as well, the um, introduction of the role of the intellectual in participating in the search for truth alongside the emergence of capitalism. Like I said, these things are all very much intertwined. And in this system, the people and their popular knowledge always oppose this knowledge of inquiry, this new emerging knowledge of this new state repressive system. So other institutions had to emerge to help to thwart, to oppose the formation of popular knowledge that would oppose these uh, state sanctioned knowledges. So schools would be put in place in order to homogenize people's knowledge bases to make it so that they'd all learn the same things and allow fewer and fewer opportunities to uh, resist the system or resist what they believe to be unjust. So the possibility to extract knowledge reveals that there is a surplus knowledge. And he just ends with this point, and it's an interesting one, where if you imply that there's knowledge that can be learned, can be extracted, even though it doesn't leave the person you're extracting it from, it reveals that knowledge can be distributed. It can circulate, which implies for him the, uh, uh, a surplus knowledge. And with it is formed science, allows other kinds of disciplines to emerge, and it pushes the formation and constitution of power and wealth. How all of these knowledges work together, not necessarily for an objective truth or for society to arrive at objective truths, but in many ways to encourage the uh, centralization of power and authority and wealth among a few people. Uh, electric cars are very good business, even though they are great for our world. We can't deny the fact that part of the reason they're allowed to exist is because they are very good business for some people. 
which isn't to bemoan electric cars. I think that we, we need a lot more of them. But it's also important to acknowledge the ways in which that they contribute to um, the centralization of power and wealth among a few. So to look at the, and this is really the last point, to look at these connections, how all of these things connect, uh, what he calls epistemological matrices. How does knowledge connect with the accumulation of wealth? How does, you know, using intellectuals to perfect the economy, to optimize the economy or industry, contribute to new forms of uh, the accumulation of wealth? So seeing how all these things are connected, the epistemological matrices, uh, to, to analyze them, I should say, is, in his words, to perform an archaeology and to analyze, therefore, knowledge, power, how they intersect. So the surplus of knowledge always seeks to realize itself by carving out objects of study, subjects of study, subjects to study, and it analyzes them and tries to learn more about them to better control them, not necessarily to make the world a better place. Uh, some people do that, of course, thank God, uh, but largely the way that the system has been organized, has been has developed historically, has been to maintain uh, power in the hands of a few. And the same can be done, you know, uh, this archaeology. To look at these epistemological matrices can be applied to anything. Help us understand why prisons exist as they do now, why hospitals exist as they do now, and so on. And yeah, that'll wrap this up. If there's anything I excluded, I'd love to hear about it. Anything I got wrong, I'd love to hear about it. Uh, it's a difficult one to present because, like I said uh, in the previous episode, it's all like bullet points. So it's hard to extract a, a coherent narrative and really follow what's going on. But I, yeah, I think I did okay. If um, you like what I did, you can like, share, subscribe, leave a review on a podcast platform. Uh, I really I like reading them. And um, yeah, tell your friends. They might like it. On that note, take care.